This is the Writer Who Reads podcast coming to you direct from New Orleans, Louisiana. Hi. Hello. This is Kate Austin, the writer who doesn't read enough. And this is Trapper Kinchin, the writer who doesn't write enough. And this is us in episode 15? Question mark. Question mark, whatever. And we have a big question mark because we've been off for two months. Yeah, and we didn't realize it till just now. Yeah, we were like, just oh, how yeah. long it had been. <laughs> yeah, oh god, I feel so guilty, but you know, it was a great two months. I went to Europe. Mm-hmm. It was a, a really, a really fun time. Yes, and I. You existed. To, I was like, I anything <laughs> especially interesting to tell the group. I mean, you got the uh, the poison ivy that sent you to oh, the hospital. Oh my gosh, did I yeah. ever? Yeah. Yeah. I always knew I had sensitive skin, but good grief. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a warning, I guess, for y'all. Mm-hmm. But... Wear long pants in the woods. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> oh, God. We forgot on the podcast. No, we're bantering. We're bantering. It's fun. Anyway, this is episode 15, probably, and our theme is morality. Yeah. And I kind of initiated the theme because. You wrote a book review on the writer who rigs right. I blog, forgot. That's all you chose it. Yeah. And I thought it was great. Uh-huh. And it was on The Handmaid's Tale. And oh, you thought it was great. I did. Thank you. Very witty. Very oh. Column-like. I loved it. So when I read it, I thought, oh, this is there. There's so much moral stuff going on in uh-huh. the book, and you talked about it in the review, kind of a little bit. And so I thought that'd be a fascinating thing because you can morality isn't just we're not just talking about straight up religion or anything mm-hmm. like that we're talking about all the implications yeah and all the different ways it affects our lives and, and literature i mean morality is one of the great themes yeah exactly so. but how we see morality in literature and television mm-hmm. everywhere right. normally is like through that religious scope like even in the handmaid's mm-hmm. tale it's like their whole dystopian society is based on like scripture so when you propose this theme i was like here's the rule no white women uh-huh. talking about Jesus, and you were just like, mm, "Well, I had Hannah Hernard, so I guess I'll let it go." I think your exact words were, "No white Puritans from the 16th century." <laughs> yes, and I think that's based almost purely on the lithograph or mimeograph of Frederica Bremer. <laughs> that's true and she wasn't even like puritanical no, she was just like she a, a hyper feminist yeah so that that's really funny yeah. but yeah i i think that's the easy way out when you talk about morality i agree so we have two episodes so i'm gonna go first this time mm-hmm. and i'm taking a completely different uh whew, i'm attacking this at a completely different angle um and talking about morality as it pertains to gayness and homosexuality because that's my favorite topic that's basically what the podcast is <laughs> that about is the podcast women and gayness women and, and gayness and people of color um but this is going to be the gayest episode yet it's about time yeah just like openly and proudly because everybody else has kind of been like in the shadows yeah, like their boston marriages yeah and, doing gay stuff on yeah. the low so this is this is very it's time. out there. I think you've chosen all of the queer authors. So yeah, far. I'm doing a lot of the work here, and I just want to hey, say that the queer community loves me more in this podcast. Well, the white women love me more, because that's <laughs> what I've mostly done. Well, great. You can get through to those 53% of white women that we were talking about earlier that voted for Trump. <laughs> oh. Oh, no. 
<laughs> okay, on to the episode. Okay, so this episode is special because I've told you absolutely nothing about the author. Nothing. Other than that he's like super gay. And um, yeah, so his name is Edward Iranius, I think. <laughs> it's a weird middle name. Okay. Prime Stevenson. Um, and he was born, I got two different dates. One was Wikipedia, and that was January 29th, 1858. But then there was a lot, you know, a much more um, reputable source that said July 23rd, 1868. So we're going to go with that. That's a huge discrepancy. I know. I was like, I mean, a 10-year gap and then like seven months, but whatever. Okay. We'll go with July 23rd, 1868 in Madison, New Jersey. His father was Paul E. Stevenson, a Presbyterian minister and school principal. His mother, Cornelia Prime, was described as having come from a family of distinguished literary and academic figures. So I'm sure she actually like had her own like life okay. and things going on, but they were just like, yeah, she came from a lot of educated men, which is sad for her. And his name was Prime Stevenson? Yeah, hyphenated. So I'm like, That's this was normal. like... A feminist woman who was like, that's yeah. my son. Come on, say, that's, that is not an American tradition. I think the British mm. it, would like hyphenate names a lot back oh, then. Really? But like, I don't think Americans did that at all. Yeah. So she must have had some sort of, either that, or either her family was really prominent. Yeah, maybe or... that was it. She wanted to like give him that <laughs> yeah. legacy. Um, but she, he was actually the youngest. I didn't find how many like brothers and sisters okay. he had or brothers or sisters. Um, but she had him when she was 52. Wow. I had a, my great-grandmother was 52 when she had her last child. Really? Mm. Wow. Weird. Wow. <laughs> she must have been distinguished. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Were, were the names hyphenated then? So I struggled to find in-depth information about, like, what schools he attended, but he was highly educated, and while he was in school, he began writing. And though he was admitted to the New Jersey bar, he never practiced law. So he seemed to have a pretty successful writing career early on when he was 19. He published his first novel, White Cockades. I don't... Do you know what a cockade is? How's it spelled? Cock. A-D-E-S. I bet it has to do with, like, chickens. That's what I thought. Or some kind of poultry. I didn't read the story, but it was published in 1887. Um, And it was referred to as a boy book. And I want to discuss this genre because I never heard of it before. So I was like, a boy book? And he's gay? Like, I know what this is. Is it the opposite of chick lit? (laughs) Look at it. Oh my god, I forgot about chiclet as a genre. But no, it's like this... Wait, I grabbed a quote, and it was like an explanation of it from... I wrote his name down, Alan Gribben, out of the University of Texas at Austin. And it's a long quote, but I want to read it all. I want to know what, yeah. I want to know more. Yeah, the American boy book itself is one of the most casually accepted notions in literary history and criticism. The curious assortment of what we loosely define as boy books, or sometimes bad boy books, embraces an amazingly heterogeneous collection of writings, sentimental autobiography, juvenile romance, quasi-sociological documentary, comic slapstick literary burlesque, which is like a roller coaster, Mm -hmm. um, that mainly have in common a reverence for boyhood, an autobiographical flavor, a setting in the past, and a code of behavior alien to most adults. So it's like, it sounds like boys will be boys, just like shoved into a genre. And when I was doing research on the genre, it was a lot of people were arguing about like Huckleberry Finn and stuff being considered a boy book. Okay. So I guess that's what it was. It's not like this gay genre. Like a boyhood thing that chronicles boyhood. Yeah, exactly. That's what it sounds like. My first thought was like, Queer as Folk is a boy book. But it's... 
It's not. It's not that. <laughs> so he wrote these boy books and other stories centered around themes of intense and passionate male relationships, but never crossed that line fully into homosexual literature. He was a well-respected professional writer. So in addition to his short fiction, he published poetry and musical, dramatic, and literary criticism. He was an editor for Harper's and the New York Independent, and I think other magazines or journals or whatever, but I couldn't find the names, so those are just two like prominent ones. Okay. He seemed to have a really great reputation and career in America, but in the 1890s, he started <clears throat> splitting his time between America and Europe. By the turn of the century, he was living in Europe, mostly Italy, full-time, and he was really open about why. Because in America and in England, like, it was dangerous to be out and queer. And at that time, you know, like, in the late 1890s, Oscar Wilde was, oh, he was on pretty, trial was like, he was for like gross punished. indecency. Yeah. So I would be a little bit scared, too, to be, like, super out. He couldn't live authentically in his home country. And around that time where he started, like, splitting his time between America and Europe was, like, his late 20s. So I feel like both of us could relate to like being okay. at that age and being like, now is the time where mm -hmm. I decide how I'm going to live my life. Exactly. Am I going to like fall into this trap mm -hmm. or am I going to just go and be my pure real self? That's right. He seemed really cautious still in Italy. In 1906, he self-published Inri, a memorandum. And in 1908, he published The Intersexes under the pen name Xavier Main. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. No, there's Wait, like a modern... Well... There's a modern, There's like, a modern gay <laughs> no, romance novelist no. who uses the name Xavier Maine. And let me tell you what, that his books are good. That is blasphemy. It's good, but it's just like romance books. But why wouldn't you get your own pen name? I didn't see when you said that. I was like, oh my gosh, I read some of Xavier <laughs> Yeah, Maine's I saw it in stuff. your eye. Like, hold on. <laughs> but it, it's, it is, but it's name. not from 1906. Like, yeah. it's from like 2010. <laughs> so, and it's not, I mean, it's, it's a romance book. So it's not like what I would consider literature. So. Is it a romance book or is it like pure sex um a nice balance. there's some emotion there too <laughs> there's some build up between and he he specializes scenes. in like the modern xavier main specializes in what he considers like sexual fluidity mm. so he deals a lot with like straight men falling in love with each oh, other oh wow like friends that's interesting i would actually read that it's it's fascinating mm -hmm. and he's graphic so <laughs> if you well, ever... sign me up <laughs> Hi, honey. I have some stuff I can lend you on my Barnes and really? Noble Kindle. Uh -huh. You were lamenting like previously that there's not it's, good quality like look. queer work. Well, you know, and and part of <laughs> man, you can edit all this out later. But yeah, I, I have lamented that because mm -hmm. I find that a lot of gay mm -hmm. romance uh -huh. literature or like erotica, and like I will say this, like that's not something I read much. Uh -huh. But I'm not like. When you do read it, you don't want it to it be feels, terrible. Yeah, it like feel, it's like eating candy. Like, I only do it once a year uh -huh. at Halloween. But, like, when you want candy, you eat it. It's and, like me with fan fiction. Right. So, like, um, <laughs> but, like, a lot of it is written by women for women. The gay, the gay like stuff. Like, gay male erotica yeah, written like two by men women for women. For women. And, sadly, <laughs> these women have never been a gay man. So, they can speculate. Sadly. <laughs> they can speculate. And I'm sure they've done some interviewing and all that but it's like it's not real yeah and so you the handful that you find by men uh-huh they're either so bad you can't even get into it why i don't know and i can't read any of these things that are in first person because you take a genre like that uh -huh. and then you throw in something that's very new it has to be nuanced yeah like first person yeah 
and his crud. And so you find you find somebody like Xavier Main or like Damien Swade mm-hmm. that really get into it. I need to read this. Or so maybe I understand it's, where it's Damon Sway, just for anybody who's interested. But he, but <laughs> when you said uh-huh. Xavier Main, I was like, oh gosh. Yeah, there we go. So he stole yeah. that from. I will have to shout out one fan fiction uh, writer who is a woman, I think, and she wrote the best queer erotic love story on fanfiction.net. Her username is Sad Tomato, and the story is called If Only. And I recommend it to people. Fan fiction for what thing? <sighs> Like what story? This is troubling. I I read Twilight <laughs> in oh, high school. No, uh-uh. <laughs> man. I know this is. I know we've been away for two months, and I have not lost my mind. I read it when I was like fourteen. Okay. And I am recovering. I'm recovered. You know, I took classes in college okay. about how damaging it is for feminism and everything. Good. But the fan fiction has strayed away from the vampires and everything. They literally. It's just people taking the the characters and their bare personality okay. traits from those novels <laughs> and just putting them into this format so okay. fans of the book will be drawn to it and read it. So basically it's gay erotica and they want you she wants you to envision or they want you to envision Taylor Lautner and Pattinson. Yeah. Kind of Except you don't cuz that's kind of messed up. But you knew oh. that it was those two characters. Okay. That's so fun. Well, I'm glad that you threw that out there because look. Yeah. I and I want to say this too. Uh-huh. You know, I had a professor in college, a film professor, uh-huh. and he said Jennifer Aniston movies are like the French fry of motion pictures. Yeah. If you only consume a diet of French fries, you're unhealthy and like you're going to get sick and yeah. you're never going to grow. That's true. But a healthy, balanced diet is going to include a French fry every once in a while. Like nutritionally, exactly. that's not correct. <laughs> like well, you should probably never have a French fry. If you don't have French, you know what? I guess what he was saying is everybody should indulge once in a while for your mental health. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he he said like Jennifer Aniston movies are that way, and I would say things like romance novels or fan fiction or you name it. There's Commercial always something erotica, yeah. that you want to be like, well, I don't want to talk about it. But if you read it once uh, one of those every once in a while there's no harm in it there's no harm yeah what we're doing is saying it's okay those of you out there (laughs) yeah and also don't judge us if you don't (laughs) read these things this is still a literary podcast we promise we promise um so we're gonna be reading from Emery today and like I said that was his first like super open like homosexual just wonderful novel that he wrote and like I said before, it was self-published. I think it was like 500 copies that he like paid for himself and they were published in Italy. So it took me forever. Like I found him, I found his history and I was like, I want to do him for this episode. And I was trying to get a book so bad, but like they were super expensive, like the copies that mm-hmm. I could get. So I found like scans online okay, and I've been reading the book like that. So, Emery was considered a great triumph in homophile literature because it was written by an American, and mostly because it's a spoiler, it has a happy ending. So, that up until this point, like gay characters were only permitted or like tolerated in novels if they had some terrible experience (laughs) where, yeah, it's like, like as a cautionary tale. Um, where it's like, if you're gay, you're going to commit suicide or you're going to like, your lover is going to be killed and you're going to be alone. Like it was like not allowed. That feels like modern gay movies. Really? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say it. It is so hard to find a gay movie that's got a positive ending. That's true. So 
yeah. this <laughs> early 20th century concept. <laughs> yeah. Or 19th century concept, I think, carries over. Yeah, it hasn't changed much. But this is, like, an opportunity for me to learn a new term, didactic. I didn't oh, know. Like, didactic. yeah, no, I never did somehow. So, like, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, like, this is a didactic tale in a different sense where it's, like, there's a moral lesson to be learned here, but it's not ending in tragedy. It's that, you know, right. these are human people. These are gay people. They're human. They have mm -hmm. human loves. They have human interests. And that's, I think, what Prime Stevenson is trying to do with his two, like, super queer works. I didn't read much of The Intersexes, <laughs> but I'll include a link to the story in the show notes. The Intersexes seems to really challenge all of the, like, super harmful anti-homosexual academic papers that were being, like, pumped yeah. out back in the day. On Wikipedia, it says that he defends homosexuality from a scientific, legal, historical, and personal oh. perspective. So it doesn't sound like a fiction story. Okay. And like I said before, that was super dangerous, and that's why he was, like, publishing under the name Xavier Main. Like, he was theoretically safe in Italy but he was still, like, really cautious about what he was putting out there. Hilariously, but also sadly, he used that pen name to review his other work. His first published work, <laughs> what was that? White Cockades. Yeah. And it was, like, almost a safe way to explain the line he was towing when he was in America and the things he, like, probably made more subdued in his work. Okay. So, about White Cockades... He, as Xavier Maine said, the work was passionate devotion from a rustic youth towards the prince and its recognition are half hinted as homosexual in essence. So he was saying, this is like a <coughs> low-key homosexual story. Mm -hmm. And the prince that was mentioned was like, it's a story about Bronnie, Prince Charlie, and like someone who's oh. admiring him. Yeah. Who I only know through Outlander, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Oh, that's where you get your history from. That's where I get my history. <laughs> and it's hopefully accurate. So later on, he wrote Once But Not Twice, which is a great title. I, I, I love, love that. that. Yeah. And Out of the Sun, which are both described as showing basically the risk of being homosexual, how suicide was common, but also like living life to the fullest, but also not being able to do that and the regret that comes with that, like in older age. Right. Edward Prime Stevenson's publication slowed as he aged and he died on July 23rd, 1942 in Lausanne, Switzerland. Lausanne. Lausanne. And that is his story. Wow. So he was, if we're saying 1868, mm -hmm. that would have been 32 plus 42, 74? Sure. I guess it's kind of a ripe age I'll for that you do the back math. in the day. Yeah. Wow. I guess. Yeah, that's kind of, that seems kind of young, though. Did he have... Children or a partner? A partner, yeah. yeah. So he did have a partner. No, I, I looked it up. I, like, literally was researching, like, his partner, mm -hmm. and it just didn't say. Well, and I mean, he's not notorious enough, I guess... For, for it to be to recorded. And, like, do you ever think about, like, writers and artists and famous people who, like, also date famous people yes like of course you're gonna have their letters and their correspondence right. and stuff but he might have been dating a nobody or a multiple person. nobodies yeah. and it's just like why would anyone say exactly. letters? yeah so, so well i guess we could infer that maybe he was oh he better active have. yeah you go out to italy and yeah my gosh Ugh. yeah but yeah he has a really interesting story i wish i had more information on just like his personal life but hey, this might inspire some people to do some digging. Yeah, dig, y'all. Produce more uh, papers and, oh gosh, I guess literature is the word for it. Yeah. Know. There were a few, like, academic papers about him, which mm -hmm. was really interesting to see. Um, and a lot about his work with the intersexes, um, just, like, about gender and, yeah. and sexuality. 
But yeah, I want to get into his writing because I have a lot to say about that. I'm interested to hear a little bit of it. Yes. Okay, let's go. Okay. Emery, a memorandum by Edward Prime Stevenson. Wow, that was intense. I know. <laughs> and let's be completely transparent right now. Um, it's like 10 p.m. on a Friday, and we both work full-time jobs. Yeah. And I just tried to read that, and I didn't. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not doing this. You read it to yourself, and we'll talk about it. And, like, one day I will record it and put it in and pretend like we did it all at once. Yeah. But, yeah, I couldn't read that. And I think that says a lot about his writing style. Oh, yeah. And the time, and we had a, like a brief discussion about how wordy it is, how the the language is elevated, mm -hmm. and I was like, this just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like an American in 1906 writing this fancy aristocratic language. And then I was like, oh wait, like the main character of this is an English yeah. aristocrat, so this makes sense. But yeah, the sentences are long, it's twisty, and it's difficult to read. But I remember the first time that I was reading through this, I was enraptured by the romance of it. Mm -hmm. I was like, he was saying some things that were just like super honest and sweet, and this is written like he's writing yeah. in a journal. Manly, limpid eyes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is this is not just vaguely gay. This is like he's flirting. I like his voice. Yeah. I like his eyes. Yeah. You know, he's immediately attracted to this van. Yes. When you you know when we were first going through it, and you're like, man, this is weird language for the 20th century. And I told you, I can't. I associate that with people from really wealthy families who mm -hmm. write. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh huh. Um, I told you like Edith Wharton. Mm -hmm. wrote that way in her stuff where it was like uh, an extremely elevated narrator mm -hmm. narrative voice that the person writing assumes everyone is going to comprehend this yeah. because their mind is caught up in a certain sphere yeah and so when you said that the narrator is an aristocrat uh-huh i thought okay well he's using a device here yeah he's, i don't know i never of course i've never read anything else by him but um if his other work is not quite as elevated, it's an interesting device, the vocabulary and the layout. To really play into that character <laughs> exactly. and help characterize. Yeah, I, I thought so. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. I want to read his other stuff just to compare it. What, what would the other stuff be like compared to this? Yeah, because, um, I mean, the intersex is, sounds like an academic paper. Right. You know, so that wouldn't be a good example. But, sure. like, his other short stories mm -hmm. and, I don't like, other novels would be a really good comparison. Yeah. And I was thinking, too, when you read the preface... Mm -hmm. And it was like a letter to to the author. Yeah. Uh, I thought it's interesting because in a way, of course, that preface was framed as a letter. So I kept thinking, oh, is this going to be epistolary? Mm -hmm. And it shifts into, I guess it would be. He, it's like this person has written this to the author. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's fascinating because yeah. I think of like epistolary literature. Mm-hmm. As a very 18th century thing, the 1700s is when that was really cool and popular, and that's how people would sort of legitimize these fiction narratives by presenting it to their readers 
as letters. Tongue in cheek like as like intimate found. correspondence. Mm-hmm. That's like found things. Yeah. And that's exactly this is the one reason I think why I, why I chose this author mm-hmm. because by using that kind of I, it seems like a genre mm-hmm. but you, that's a device in, it, it in and of itself because it's like I'm trying to present to the world that homosexuality is like not this terrible right. thing like it's something real and something that happens between yeah. normal people yes. and this is a true story and this is my way of like legitimizing it and going back to the the language that is almost stumbling mm-hmm. it's so much if you look at the punctuation on the page there's m dashes and commas and uh it's not natural to our minds and tongues uh-huh. to read it this way yeah because i read it aloud to myself uh-huh. just now and uh i think it's effective as a first person transcription of a memory which is what this is uh because it's almost like when we think back on things or when we're explaining a story from the past or something that's meaningful we layer exactly mm-hmm. and it's like because what we're doing is we're literally watching a movie of a memory in our mind mm-hmm. and we're processing it from our bri- our neurons mm-hmm. to our tongue. Yep. And so what we're doing is we're like looking at that motion picture in our brain mm-hmm. and we're, our tongues are just like narrating. Trying to keep up. Yeah. So it does that. It's like, it makes a lot of sense. and you can also, there's a heavy sense of uh, romanticization, romanticization. Oh my golly. <laughs> Romanticization. I don't know. What would the word be? He's to romanticize. Yeah. yeah he's romanticizing. Romantic- the narrator is romanticizing this encounter that was obviously special and meaningful to him. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're listening to it or when you're reading it, it's like, okay, I get it. This is, you're at a cafe in Hungary. Uh-huh. You see this good looking man and you can tell that he his it, it, he's making more of it because it gave him feelings. Exactly. Like feelings. Yeah, it seems like so much more. Ooh, I was gonna say contrived, but it seems just so faded almost. Yeah. And it's like in reality, if you're in a cafe, it might be loud, it might yeah. be hot, it might be uncomfortable. But like those aren't the details that are included here. Yeah, that was really interesting too. Because the thing about first person is and the reason that it's hard to do well uh-huh. is your reader has to trust the narrator mm-hmm. in a way that that's not necessary in third person mm-hmm. or second person because you know but with first person when you read you do as a as a, as a reader decide oftentimes subconsciously if you're going to trust what's being you're being told Mm-hmm. And so with this, I do, I trust what the guy's saying, but I'm also like, ah, this is a love struck person because look at how he's explaining this to me. Yeah, that's true. And I enjoy that. Yeah. <clears throat> I never questioned him at all in this. I don't know why. Okay. Like, I, I didn't finish the book. I will say that. <laughs> I really want to. But um, from the beginning, I was like, well, this is just his take on the situation mm-hmm. and it could be different for the person that I, but I think I have more issue I I more easily consume and write first person than you okay. do so I think I'm more comfortable you with approach it. it with less skepticism yeah exactly okay. I'm like well this is what he believed to be true so it's authentic it, to you it doesn't matter right. if it's not actually accurate because I'm <clears throat> hearing it from his perspective okay. but I understand why you would be suspicious of it <laughs> I'm always suspicious so about the story though like I said it does end happily but another thing that I wanted to point out that isn't really like conveyed in those few, first few pages is that like both of the men are described as really masculine 
And I found that, like, in, like, academic papers and, and, like, story analysis and stuff about this actual story. And I thought that was interesting because I think still today and surely back in, like, the early 1900s, gay men were seen as effeminate and different from just mainstream ideas of what mm-hmm. gender was on that gender binary. You know, oh, you're I... either hyper-feminine <clears throat> or hyper-masculine. There's not much space in between. Women can't wear pants. You know, all this all this crap that was going on at the time. And I think that um, Prime <laughs> Stevenson really was like, these are two masculine men, okay. something that you're very familiar with, something that you're comfortable with. One of them is in the military. He's a lieutenant. And one of them is this like respected English aristocrat and they fall in love I think it was really important for him to like not necessarily challenge gender stereotypes at the same time that he was trying to present homosexuality as this thing that occurs naturally in nature in the preface I found very interesting some of the things he said he's he's kind of pegging the idea of what he calls homosexualism as being a sort of the purest form of sort of male relationships. Mm-hmm. Meaning like the men who are heterosexual are just stumbling through life when like these homosexual men uh, have the purest form of love because it's for another man. Uh-huh. And there's no need for like to seek out this feminine They haven't been thing. guided <clears throat> to it from birth. Mm-hmm. Because you, you, you see like even today how like Oh, I hate it. And my mom would, would like, hate it. She always talks about it. But, like, how people are like, oh, do you have a boyfriend at preschool? They're, like, little girls. Yeah. Like, oh, you got a girlfriend? And, like, these are three-year-olds. And you're like, oh, yeah, who's your boyfriend? My mom used to be like, you don't have anybody. You are three years old. You know what I mean? But, like, people entertain that. So you're, like, yeah. conditioned at a young age to be like, oh, yeah, boyfriend. Got three girlfriends. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, he's, he's saying here, he's like, you completely forewent those conditioning things that you were taught and you're like no actually i i like men and that is my natural state because everyone told me not to and i still do and he's really playing into the or i'm interpreting that the parts of the preface that deal with what we're talking about Mm -hmm. as him saying that homosexuality is actually the naturalist form of love um that's kind of what i was getting it's kind of like oh i didn't it's almost like he's saying uh, if left to their own devices, uh-huh. men, like men at their core, would seek out other men. Mm-hmm. And that's not the first, I feel like that's not the first time I've heard that in No, literature. and I feel like I, I remember him bringing up a lot of, like, Greek names and gods Pray, and stuff. Um, and that is, yeah, that's definitely a Greek idea yeah. of having, like, Greek men still had, like, wives and, yeah. and stuff, but they also had, like, male relationships. That would be, like, the purest form of emotional and romantic connection would be with another man. Yeah. I think that's that's interesting because he's pushing back against that Victorian idea. Uh, and let's say this, mm-hmm. homosexual is a Victorian term. Really? Yeah. It was Go, invented say in, more. Yeah. I remember that being said all the time in college. They're, they're being said like this idea of identifying gay men and women uh-huh. as homosexual uh-huh. and the idea of heterosexual being the norm uh-huh. is a is like a quote unquote false biologic term from uh, the Victorian age or maybe a biological term from the Victorian age they were trying to categorize stuff I think before that like vulgar terms like bugger or something like mm-hmm. stuff oh, like okay, that were yeah. used but there wasn't a 
word for it. Yeah. Um, even in like the King James Bible, there wasn't like a word for homosexual. So that's why they said like men lying with men and stuff. Uh, so yeah. anyway, so when you hear that, he's pushing back against the idea of homosexual being this biological term mm-hmm. that identifies a defect and saying, ha homosexualism is not just natural, but the most natural form because it's not dealing with these learned behaviors of mm. this is what you should do. Yeah. Oh, so that's got to be kind of cutting edge maybe. Yeah. Know, it yeah. No, it, it sounds sound. Modern to me. Yeah. <laughs> a little modern. too modern for today. You know, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, like I'm, I'm scanning through this right now mm-hmm. and he's talking about a mystic and Hellenic, this Greek brotherhood, uh-huh. a sort of super virile man. Like the manliest of men. Yeah. Have sex with other men. I was going to say virile <laughs> to me. The word virile, I think. I think has a reproduction. A, I was going to say it's a yeah. connotation of potency. Yeah, exactly. Ability to like achieve. So that's a, an interesting term to use when you're talking about homosexuality. Yeah. But I understand where he's going with that. Let's talk about maybe just the word choices because, we, and we talked a little bit about it a while ago, uh, the heightened diction Mm-hmm. Well, I did want to touch on, because we talked about the long sentences and the yes. punctuation and everything, and there I don't know how many instances there are of this, mm-hmm. but I took a note of one instance where he capitalized, like, the H in he. Oh, which is God. When he was talking about Imri, though. Oh, wow. So, like, there's this, like, type of devotion that he's, like, building up. Uh-huh. But then also, at another point in the story, he didn't capitalize like a sentence that started with it you know what i mean like it it was odd and i was like is this a typo Mm -hmm. is this some kind of weird style that was going on at this time Uh, curious yeah it it was a little weird it's almost like the and again i'm not sure because maybe that was a trend at the time Mm -hmm. but it's almost like the capitalization the punctuation uh, mimic the rambling thoughts mm. uh, or the like I'm going so fast right now that it, like I'm not able to get it all correct that would be like really weird like if, if <laughs> yeah, like some like modern hipster writer would do that right now I would be like you're an imbecile yeah I'd be like you're <laughs> going for this like visual thing yeah. and I just think that we should just stick with the writing mm-hmm. you know but I mean that would be really interesting if he did do that yeah a little bit further into the story, we get a little more, like, dialogue. I don't think we hit any in, in the reading. Mm-hmm. No. I was going to say, like, the only other thing we've dealt with in the podcast in terms of just sheer breadth of sentence <laughs> was Hannah Hernard. Yeah. And with him and with her both, I think when you're reading this aloud, it's impossible to get through some of these sentences without pausing to breathe. Mm-hmm. And so... I always assume that the author is doing that on purpose. When we're reading in our minds, we don't have to take that breath, that mm-hmm. pause to breathe. Yeah. But um, when, when we're reading something long, mentally, we have to go slower. Mm-hmm. And I think that that causes us to process it at a different pace That's true. and on a deeper level. And it makes you, like, you have to concentrate yeah. on it. You can't just, like, read <laughs> arbitrarily. You have to be like, okay... I understand the sentence. Let's move on to the next one. But for this, I understand more than Hannah Hernard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, like, I'm like, this, like you were saying before, Mm -hmm. he has a train of thought. That's right. And he's recounting things. Hannah Hernard was writing fiction. And she was, yeah, she was writing fiction, and she was writing 
where his the well, language he's using is elevated uh-huh. hers was not on purpose yeah. and uh i guess their aims were di- honestly i think their aims were similar but different at the same time uh-huh. um in that both of them were trying to i don't say con- convince is not the right word but present a case for thinking about things differently and that's very true and i think maybe i mean comparing him to hannah hernard or hannah hernard to him is like saying what does a pomegranate have in common with what was her like time period though when she was writing in like the mid 20th century so they were they were like pretty close in time and also like both of these stories deal with morality they do so that's that's a parallel that we should probably explore a little bit because i mean maybe make forcing your reader to focus Uh more and take the story in a little bit slower is going to make them more open to exploring their moral compass at least making them think on a deeper level about what you're presenting to them exactly so that they can't reject it immediately yeah and it makes it too difficult for them to accept it immediately uh-huh. without thought <laughs> this I mean, is really. the type of like thing where they like we could fall down a rabbit hole and We're like there. edward prime stevenson and hannah hernard are just like wow never thought about that when i was writing it but it sounds good like yeah. that's the kind of thing i'd be going like yeah totally did that on purpose great guys like you're really imposing this authorial intent on our work it's like us in a writer's workshop it's like oh god i'm actually a genius i didn't oh, realize can you believe it but this i mean this is the kind of book i would enjoy mm-hmm. i like this kind of thing as part of my literary diet mm-hmm. because if nothing else it, it it this is the kind of thing that would have a positive effect on one's writing if only that it would encourage one to include i don't know expand one's vocabulary you know what i mean to include yeah. words that aren't soup that make one think or yeah or, or kind of um because the english language is so wonderful because of just the amount of synonyms mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah the countless words that can mean one thing yeah and so he's he's chosen his words specifically and wisely uh and i'm trying to think like limpid is a great word because if i'm not mistaken it means like uh bottomless like mm-hmm. deep yeah i believe is uh-huh. what limpid means so when he's describing these manly limpid eyes i mean he mm-hmm. could put like manly eyes like deep pools i mean that's a little bit trite but yeah limpid yeah it means something powerful mm-hmm. and it's saying something like about it, it, it explains why he's drawn to this man yeah. immediately. Because when you meet someone in a cafe, it's not just like, they looked like a nice person. It's like something about them that Lightning. that just yeah. hooks you. Agreed. So, like, it, it, it really works with that idea of, like, him creating this super believable story mm-hmm. about just, like, instant attraction. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, and it's, yeah. like, simple word choices mm-hmm. like that that really do a lot of work. Yeah. yeah but like you were saying you know having this and reading it as a writer yeah. i'm i'm now having my eyes open to the fact that it's like wow like if i write stories and i don't just think about okay well this is my plot loosely and then this is this is what's going to happen these are the characters mm-hmm. these are how they react mm-hmm. but if i think about like how i'm going to format it you know it's come it sounds like a letter yeah. and that's going to help make it more legitimate rather than just like shoving in facts you right. know like ooh, his eyes were hazel like like a <laughs> oh, bad yeah. ya novel that's you know right, yeah. like that i it just it just makes everything more realistic i love that you, you really 
you said something that like I have not thought I've not been able to verbalize, but it has been in my mind for so long. Uh-huh. The importance of finesse when writing, mm. and that comes with sitting down and approaching your writing from a lot of different angles before you even get off the ground. Yes, absolutely. And one of our professors in college taught us that. Our novel writing professor, oh. she was all about, don't you dare start without knowing where you're going. Yeah, cause exactly. Because you'll never get anywhere. Yeah. And when you just said a detail like hazel eyes, that could ruin a chapter or an entire book. Mm-hmm. Like you yeah. said, if used incorrectly because it's like, what a superfluous piece of junk. Exactly. That takes me out of whatever narrative you're trying to put in there. Yeah. Um, but the, the information is still there. We know that Emery has hazel eyes, yes. but they're deep. They're mm-hmm. limpid. Wait, limpid? Limpid, yeah. <laughs> Word of the day. Limpid. <laughs> limpid. Brought to you by the letter L. <laughs> oh Sunny days. <laughs> so terrible. It's late. It Did is. we mention it's late? It's late. Um, but yeah, so that, that's a really good uh, thing to point out. As like a writer who reads, yeah. and and I think we one achieves the finesse, mm-hmm. and I think finesse is different for everybody. Uh-huh. Just that polish, I think one achieves it by reading a lot of varied work, mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier, the fan fiction and the romance novels. If you find <laughs> good, if you find the best of those things, and you yeah. pair it with something like this and then you throw in some modern works some essays and you bring all that together and you get all these different perspectives and then you sit down and you write you're gonna get that finesse yeah you piece together a really believable story Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the things that edward prime stevenson has done the best Mm -hmm. in this story is just making it believable and that that's a thing that's like done a great service to the gay community is like there's probably there are probably some people who read this Uh who were like scandalized by it but they learned a lesson and if nothing else i mean i know he it was printed in a limited Mm -hmm. number it's so important now and i'm sure it was very important then for queer people to have something to consume that is about them it's the same with anybody women people of color so right you've got to see yourself represented and i forget that all the time like even in my own writing because i wrote that story that was published in deep south i was talking to this woman about the story and i was talking about white feminism because i kind of like went after in that story Mm -hmm. and she was like yeah i just i would love to see like white new england college campus kids <laughs> read this and like really think yeah. about like their activism and what they're doing and i was like yeah that's who i really wanted to get to like at this mm-hmm. with this story mm-hmm. and she was just like but it's also for like black people who have to deal with that that crap so that that's like the really important thing is representation right. that to me it's so important because you and i are, we we both know what it's like to be young we talked about this earlier Mm -hmm. and to feel marginalized Mm -hmm. and to feel lost and to not know how to embrace who you are yeah and it's stuff and in that and look for a lot of people that carries over well into adulthood oh yeah you know definitely it's self-acceptance i haven't seen like there's so many examples of like if you ask any queer person Mm -hmm. like or like any like person of color like yes what disney character did you identify with as a child i identified with pocahontas because she was brown and my mom braided my hair like like you know native american braids sometimes like i didn't have princess tiana or like the first like gay kiss i saw like lesbian kiss i saw on television was on that 
what I don't even know what channel it was. What was the show? It was whatever channel that Degrassi came on. Noggin. No, it was not. Yes, it was the. uh, um, I think it was a Canadian show. It was yeah, but was it Teen Nick that you watched? No, Degrassi like that. It was on Noggin. It was on Noggin. Well, there was a show that was like South of Nowhere or Out of (laughs) Uh Nowhere, and like there was yeah, there was a daughter, and she had that like rocker like friend, and (laughs) they kissed, and I was like. This is possible, mm-hmm. and I was like instantly like, "Oh, you're pretty queer," yeah. you know. Like it, it's like <laughs> having stuff queer. like this out here that it's like, "Oh, there's yeah. a there's another man in a cafe somewhere yes. looking at some man's deep hazel eyes and like, oh, I've seen this before, so I'm not this absolute terrible monster freak yeah. that needs to go somewhere." And that's why I love that you said this narrative has a positive ending. Mm, yeah, because you know it's important. To not only have the representation, but to have it not end in tragedy, for it to not end bad for anybody, mm-hmm. um, it's good. It's good, and I can only imagine in, at this period of time mm-hmm. when so much was codified and you couldn't be direct mm-hmm. that how great it must have been to have something that's like laying it out flat. No special clues. He says homosexualism Mm -hmm. just in the beginning of the novel. He's slicing through it. Yeah, exactly. And he had that freedom because he had the the pen name. Um, But there, I just, there's one more thing that I just wanted to mention that's a little bit further into the book. (laughs) And it's um, the the character, Lieutenant Emery, is, he's talking about this friend that he had who was like very handsome and he he was talking about him really sadly like you know he went away and and uh the main character is just kind of like well you know like did you have romantic feelings for him and he was just like whoa 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 man like i just met you i don't know why i'm telling you all this stuff Mm -hmm. so it's like building up their instant connection but also like building up this background of like of I don't know, like, secrecy and, like, mm-hmm. this isn't their first interaction with, like, being attracted to okay. to men. Okay. And I think that's really important for the story because it makes it less of this, like, risque Life. thing and more of just, like, an actual <coughs> legitimate love story. That's great. In a way. Yeah. And it's also not beating around the bush in terms of a, a lot of, well, I'm not going to say a lot of, but there was stuff produced, I think particularly in the 1920s, that dealt with male intimacy on a friendship level mm-hmm. in a very homo erotic way. Mm-hmm. Like D.H. Lawrence wrote a lot of stuff like that. Is that like just like a lot of like experimentation and playful? It's mostly like yeah, like that kind of thing, like wrestling or. Um, it's almost like sharing the intimate part of yourself with another man in terms of. It, emotion Mm -hmm. and then sharing yourself physically with a woman that's the way a lot of stuff was presented wow and so this is kind of saying Uh it's kind of (laughs) cutting the middleman out and saying look (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly wow that's that's interesting but um it's nice that you brought this author and this text up because Mm -hmm. i think it shows a really interesting transition from victorian literature you know you mentioned oscar wilde Mm -hmm. Um, so this guy's writing, this was published in 1906, so you get that transition from the Victorian age, kind of moving into the modern age, mm-hmm. where people are becoming a little more emboldened, you yeah. know, um, it's per, you know, I'm just thinking about it, and so by the time you work your way through the 20th century, people are moving more and more and more and more 
forward in terms of self-expression in their writing. Yeah, I mean, so. if you jump from 1906 to, like, the 1950s, when yeah. you have those, like, there's so many just, like, lesbian erotic novels that oh, for sure. some reason I come across all the time when I'm not even looking for them. I'm just like, in that short span of yes. time, look how much... I mean, they're still being written under, like, pseudonyms right. and pen names and stuff. But I think that's really interesting. It is. Yeah. It is, and... and it, it goes to show you, you know, we always talk about, in terms of sociology, every step forward is an important step, mm-hmm. even even though it's a journey of like a thousand steps. Yeah. So even though he's, he's writing this in 1906, mm-hmm. okay, in the United States, gay people didn't get the right to marry until 2015. 2015. Yeah. So well over a hundred years later, but... Even though this was a drop in the pail, it helped fill the bucket ultimately. Yeah. So, and I mean, this is referred to as like a historic like achievement for yeah. the gay community. So, like a this landmark. isn't yeah. Like when we talk about the writer who reads podcasts, this is someone who really doesn't get the recognition right. that they deserve. And you know, we've kind of danced around our theme of morality with this, and maybe we haven't because I think it's especially in our Western minds, mm-hmm. it's hard to disconnect the idea of homosexuality or sexuality in general mm-hmm. without morality being piggybacked onto that yeah. without even even having to talk about it much. Exactly. But like when you think of homosexuality in, in the, the frame of like as a moral issue, mm-hmm. like you always just hear the, the church screaming there behind you, you, it's wrong, it's wrong, Sin. it's wrong. But like it's a moral <laughs> issue and I have my own set of morals. Mm-hmm. And my morals have nothing to do with the church. So separating that, it's interesting to have this as a theme. Yeah, you brought up an important topic or an important point that morality is a very personal thing. Mm -hmm. We think about it in a social context as a collective thing, like uh, the American moral code or standard. Mm -hmm. But it's a very individual thing. Ultimately, I had a conversation with somebody recently and we were talking about um, actually like morality mm-hmm. it was a conversation about trans people she we talked about it yeah, earlier we, yeah and one thing i told her is like it's so strange because the things that we consider nor not just normal but like the foundations of our reality are all based on like in america on this western idea mm-hmm. and it's all based on like the west on europe and the morality and religion it's all founded on that yeah. and we think of it as not just normal but like I don't, I don't even know how to verbalize it right now but it's like you don't question it because it's the norm mm-hmm. okay but it's again just a construct yeah and that's the thing it's it's what we as like a society have like molded like this yeah. is the norm this is what we're used to and that that stuff is like we mentioned earlier it starts from birth yes. it is inherently just dug into your mm-hmm. soul because it's reinforced everywhere that's you're right. looking in media and relationships around you yep. because everyone who isn't the standard mm-hmm. is scared to live their true selves yeah. So, yeah, the way to challenge that is to create realistic stories and humanize people who don't fit into that, like, commonly accepted moral code. And I think you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the the trans conversation you had about trans people with uh, that person was that, like, you were like, you know, change doesn't come easy. It doesn't come quickly. And when it does people get violent and loud and scary so it's like it's it's best when it comes in in little little pieces so like a book like prime stevenson's is like a good single step but there's so many there's so much more work to do exactly and um i don't know 
there's probably no way for us to figure it out because there's probably not much left behind in terms of historical documentation. But I wonder, I know his father was a Presbyterian minister, and I wonder what this, what Prime Stevenson's, mm-hmm. I don't know, what his relationship yeah. with religion was. Because a lot of, especially when you get into the 20th century, the beginnings of the 20th century, mm-hmm. and you get writers who dealt with issues of gayness or queerness or uh, gender in general, a lot of them are kind of atheistic mm-hmm. in term in, in their approach to writing and, yeah. and, and morality and things like that. And one thing that I find very interesting is pertinent to this discussion and this topic is that we're kind of liberated in many ways in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about it earlier. There's still much more to do for marginalized groups, yeah, but definitely. and we're also quite liberated. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it's like today, there's not, there's no. I don't feel like there's a necess a, an immediate dichotomy between being queer mm-hmm. and being a person of faith. Like yeah. you can't like they're not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I'm wondering if Prime Stevenson felt that to be one meant you could not be, be the, other. the other. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder that. Me personally, I struggle. Like I've had friends who. I oh god! I knew this girl who was just like the gayest. <laughs> I she all right. I was like obsessed with her, <laughs> but she was so Christian, and I was just like, Dude. how? We've both known like <laughs> the gayest Catholic women. Yeah. Oh we yeah. We have both you too. <laughs> known them. And I'm just like, how does it work in your head? Because you have not maybe not the actual religion itself mm-hmm. is not denouncing you, but like the people that you know practice the religion and surround you definitely are denouncing this way of life that you have you yeah. like you were born into <laughs> and that's where the huge that's where the complications arise and that's why people of prime stevenson's generation uh-huh. and the generations following that had such a hard time with you know what i mean with establishing or with reconciling their religious upbringing with yeah. their it, who they were, and I want to see how like what the religion is tied to as well. Like maybe Prime Stevenson didn't care about the religion, maybe not. But his father was a Presbyterian minister, so does that yeah. mean that if you sacrifice the religion, you sacrifice your father? Maybe. Like it's like what were his familial ties to that? And I'm thinking too. I mean, I don't know. Maybe for Prime Stevenson, it wasn't an issue. Presbyterians or Presbyterianism is a form of high church or mm-hmm. middle church so like uh and in th- today in 2018 presbyterians are very openly like welcoming to really? gay people it, like episcopalians uh-huh. um and some methodist congregations uh-huh. it's it's like all That's are nice. accepted there so i don't know i feel like it's maybe a liberal denomination because mm-hmm. it's not evangelical so i'm wondering if if his father was and mother were a little more open-minded mm-hmm. uh, if they even knew about it or if when he was growing up it was like be yourself and love you know yeah exactly there's no way of knowing and at this point we're just conjecturing 100%, yeah exactly but, but i that, i would love to know that it, like his motivations would be a little bit clear yeah but i mean he was fighting the good fight he was using his writing i'm proud of him yeah. i never knew who he was until <laughs> yeah, today exactly it oh was like oh God. just the positivity of the story having a happy ending i'm yeah. gonna finish reading it i promise yeah, let me know how it ends <laughs> uh, let me know what this positive ending is yeah exactly <laughs> oh god i i my one question because i'm a pervert is like how graphic it gets oh yeah because like something happens <laughs> you're the pervert and i'm like here's some great romance I know, you're authors like, god you're 
are so gross. Read this erotica by Xavier Main. There's all the other Xavier Main. <laughs> oh, gosh. Which makes me think that the modern Xavier Main, and I think he's uh, like an English professor. I think that's in his biography. So he's obviously a learned person who... He's an erotica nerd. Yeah, oh who knows God. about this one, obviously. Obviously, well, yeah. I'm I'm really glad you chose this author, and I'm glad that we're both totally wiped out from our week of work because... Um, I think the way we feel helped us approach this from a particular angle that we may not have if we were I think so, too. I think we were not as filtered about mm-hmm. this subject, which is good. We just kind of both went... Yeah, so either it's a great episode or it's a terrible one, yeah. but either way, we're giving it to you. And I, I'm not going to give much information away, but about I will say... Author? Yeah, but I will say that we both chose, like, different folks. You know what I mean? Sometimes we, we mm-hmm. will get people that were like, hey, that kind of corresponds. And with the the person I chose, uh-huh. I think it's going to have offer us a chance to approach the theme from a totally different angle. That's, that's like, best case scenario. Yeah. I think that's really fun. Yeah. And I'm so glad we didn't do anyone puritanical. And I'm crestfallen about that. <laughs> one day I'll let you I do wanted, that one alone. I wanted to read the autobiography and sermons of Anne Hutchinson, <laughs> and you wouldn't let me. No, no, I wouldn't. You can do that alone. We'll get a Patreon, and it'll just be you whispering into a microphone for an hour straight about, like, Puritan laws. Wouldn't that be great? That would be cute. That would be really well, cute. thanks to us choosing morality as a theme... I told you this, like, I have sussed out plenty of authors that will fit different things than morality <laughs> in my hunt for a moral author. Me too. I found some good stuff That's for the so future. funny. Well, that's good. We'll be more prepared. And I have, like, I always find Native American authors that I'm just, like, dying to, to do, do another it. episode on. Yeah, because so far it's just Zig Shaw. I really think, man, guys, y'all vote on this, listeners. I think our next theme needs to be, like, indigenous writers writing about indigenous themes. Yeah, that's a good idea. But I feel like we need, like, a, a solid theme. Like... Not just indigenous. Like, okay. All right. Write in. <laughs> with an idea, because we're going to... Because I've got an indigenous person uh-huh. that I want to Oh, do. wow. That's going to be our next one, then. So, but we'll think of a more refined theme. Yeah. And again, if our three or four listeners want to write in and say, hey, look, why don't you approach it from this angle? We'll write back and say, well, that's not appropriate, but you've given us different <laughs> ideas. You're just striking them down before they even write <laughs> yeah, in. Like, no. hit us on Instagram, writer who reads, or uh, Twitter, T-W-W-R eats. <laughs> or send us snail mail at P.O. Box 1735. We don't have a P.O. Box. Don't listen to him. Vashry, Louisiana. But yeah, like, we could do, like, preservation or invasion mm-hmm. or, like, there's so many. I love that. Yeah. I like the idea of preservation. Yeah. That's a that's little a nicer than invasion. Yeah. yeah. So, who knows, guys? Get ready, because we're going to surprise the pants off of you next yeah. time. And it, we won't be recording at 11 p.m. on a Friday night. Yeah, this is our last Friday that's not a holiday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I had fun talking about this. This was an adventure. Uh-huh. In babysitting. It was. And I I <laughs> I try and shy away from doing white men. I think the last white man we did was Alan Hart. Who was a trans person. Who was a trans person, and this is, like, a gay white man. Well, yeah. (laughs) I've told you this. I was like, you know what? Uh, Not all all marginalized people are the same, but it's better than doing, like, I don't know, think of an example here. Cormac McCarthy, a modern... 
I was like waiting for you to say a name, like I would actually know who you were talking about, but I should have known better. I don't know. Yeah, I'll look him up and then agree with you, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been episode 15 of the Writer Who Reads podcast. I'm your host, Kate Austin. I'm Trapper Kenshin. And thanks for joining us as we try to read a little more, write a little better, and, and explore, explore the human, human condition, condition together. together. <laughs> Heather. <laughs>